This morning we continue our sermon series on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. Last Sunday I made my best attempt at summarizing one of the grandest passages in all of Scripture, the first 14 verses of chapter 1, because we had taken a break from a seven-week start to the series from the fall, and I wanted to get us all on the same page if you weren't able to be here last Sunday, uh, and certainly if you weren't here in the fall, and I encourage you to not only read Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, but uh, sample some of the messages uh, that um, we walked through in the fall. Um, We're picking up in verse 15 of chapter 1, so let's get into the text. Listen carefully. These are God's words. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, the one who has incomparably great power, you who have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the glory of the Trinity, speak through this word, speak across 2,000 years from the pen of the Apostle Paul, that we might hear, as the Ephesians did, that we might be changed, because we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, A few words and phrases that will walk us through this passage. Uh, By the way, we're going to read the same set of verses several times because of the context of a letter. We can't just take one section or one uh, sentence or two out of context, but each time we circle back with the same passage, we're going to be looking at some different uh, highlights, okay? Uh, so the first word we'll, we'll use is therefore. When we pick up, as we did in verse 15, right after Paul's passionate run-on sentence in which he is unfolding the glories of God's plan of salvation, he builds on that thought with this phrase, for this reason. We might say he's, he's saying, based on what I just said, or therefore, and he's pointing backwards to verses 3 through 14. What did he just say? Here it is again. Ephesian church, you possess every spiritual blessing in Christ that you possess because of the gracious initiative of the Father because of the sacrificial redeeming blood of the Son and because of the sealing, guaranteeing work of the Holy Spirit. This is all yours. The the, the pointer back in verse 15 for this reason helps us to realize we cannot understand what Paul is about to say until and unless we fully understand the fullness of the gospel, verses 3 through 14. We're going to keep going in Ephesians. We're going to keep building on this, but um, I want you to personally consider and apply to your own life this very question. 
do you really fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know it deeply enough for it to be foundation for your life? Do you have a cornerstone to your spiritual building? Back in 2012, I had the privilege of traveling to Israel. And during uh, part of the tour in Jerusalem, we gathered at this location. Uh, look on the screens. This is the southwest corner of the temple that was rebuilt by Herod the Great, the Roman leader, in the decades before the first century. And uh, we, we stood here for a, um, a short lecture from our tour guide in yellow, because it was raining and cold, and marveled at these huge, smooth stone blocks, the largest of which is 40 feet long. If you're like me and you're not a contractor or an architect or an engineer, uh, what's 40 feet? I'll tell you exactly what you can picture. This sanctuary is, is exactly 80 feet wide. A stone block, half the width of the sanctuary, eight feet wide, four feet high. An amazing feat of human engineering to rebuild this temple. No mortar or cement was used to connect one block to the other. These seams are so perfect. These surfaces are so smooth, you you would think that they had been cut with some sort of diamond-tipped saw guided by a laser beam. Amazing. And 2,000 years later, after wars and fires and natural disasters and the natural erosion of weather and all kinds of other human activity, this foundation hasn't shifted. If, if you're interested in spirituality in general, or if you consider yourself to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, I would submit whichever category you fall into, you share a common desire, you share a common need, and that is for love. I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about a a universal human need for affection, for one-anothering, for community, for belonging, for for sharing life in in the healthy little intimacies of, of community. We know from uh, studies that um, children who grow up in highly dysfunctional, isolated environments don't develop in, in a healthy way. And that's not just children. They're, they're so much more profoundly influenced in the early ages, but adults cannot thrive living in isolation. Um, studies on solitary confinement in prisons. People get mentally, spiritually, uh, emotionally destroyed And that kind of truth is universally applied because it flows out of God's creational design for human beings created to reflect His image. We've been created by God to love and to be loved, to know others and to be known by them. And so, for example, when the Apostle John at the end of the New Testament in his first letter defines love it should catch our attention. It, it, it should grab our um, attention, especially in a world where love has been corrupted and twisted and cheapened and replaced with destructive substitutes 
like pornography, or even in a um, more subtle way with the flood of media that crowds out natural human interactions in relationship. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Define love under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love is preeminently displayed, revealed, taught and learned, purified, intensified in Christ Jesus. And we access all of that through faith in Him, by trusting in Him. Christ is the only cornerstone, John would say, Paul would say, the only foundation for any life. And then growing in and trusting in this foundation, to to stand upon it firmly involves regular reading of Scripture, renewing ourselves in these kinds of truths, preaching the the heart of the gospel to ourselves, applying it to everyday life, uh, uh, especially in the crucible, especially when uh, we're we're under trial and, and suffering, to be able to go deeper and realize these truths, yes, still apply even in this kind of circumstance, all to give you increasingly in Christ a rock-solid cornerstone-like stability when the world and the evil one shake your life. Here it is again, verses 3 to 14. The Father has chosen me. The Son has redeemed me by His blood. The Spirit assures me that these things are most true, and I will inherit these blessings from the Father. Paul writes in Romans 8, gives us another angle, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, two verses together. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him? Graciously give us all things. Can't you picture a mother overflowing her heart saying, kid, I gave birth to you. That was no fun. I got up in the middle of the night repeatedly for months to feed you, to to keep you alive, to nourish you. You don't think I have your back? You don't think I have your best in mind? Do you doubt my love for you given all of the sacrifice that I have endured for you. Foundations, like a a mother's love, are are everything, are all important. Verse 15 here in Ephesians 1 points us back to the foundation of the gospel. For this reason, Paul says, pointing back, because the Father has demonstrated the extent of His love. He gave His own Son. How could you doubt that? How can you not stand firm upon that kind of demonstrated love? And I'd ask you, Grace Redeemer Church, do you know this deeply enough to stand firm? Do you know this in in the face of suffering when the world assaults you with 
its opposite values? Do you, do you know this gospel so deeply that it shapes your every thought, your every decision, your every word? If you don't, we are glad you're here and know that there are plenty of others who would say the same, and we would love an opportunity to share this best of news with you. Grab Steve after the service, uh, one of our ruling elders. Grab myself. Grab, grab one of the Sunday school teachers if, if you were in that class and, and ask us. We would love to show you the depth of this love of God in Christ Jesus. Others of you, many of you here uh, who call GRC home would say, I know this love. And if you do, let's walk together so that this gospel foundation becomes increasingly sure and solid, and certain in our lives. We'd expect Paul's next thought after verses 3 to 14, the heart of the gospel, we'd expect his next thought to go more like this. For this reason, there's no need for me to pray because God is in control of all things. God is the one, verse 11, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will And so what's the point of bothering a sovereign, all-wise God with my measly little prayers? That would make sense. We wouldn't argue with the apostle had he written that, except for the fact that he says the exact opposite. That leads us to our next phrase, heading, ever since. Those are the next two words we find in verse 15. For this reason, ever since, when you say ever since, that tends to point to some sort of defining experience in your life. Sometimes it's, it's uh, mundane. You know, ever since I ate banchan chicken for the first time, I can't get it out of my mind. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little more significant, like a milestone that you'd never forget in life. Ever since I showed up at Celebrate Recovery on a Wednesday night, I've experienced the power of God in a whole new way. I, I know that I'm in community among fellow sinners who are broken, who are struggling. And that just puts wind in my sails. Ever since I stopped drinking and smoking and eating junk, I felt like a new man, right? That's, that's a significant ever since. Ever since I heard that grace story in January, which is so much like my story, I have no longer felt alone, isolated, on my own, having to, to, to wrestle with this dissonance between my struggle and God's goodness and, and His grace. Ever since I heard that story, I, I have tasted freshly the forgiveness of God and the healing power of the gospel, which gives me hope for the days ahead. Well, what's Paul's ever since experience? Ever since... He says to the Ephesians, I heard about your faith and your love. Your faith in the Lord Jesus, vertically, and your love for all God's people, horizontally. Ever since that, he's, he, he can't help but respond in a certain way. Pastor and teacher Brian Chapel writes this about the Ephesians, especially this verse, their faith in Jesus separates them from the surrounding idolatrous culture of paganism and multiple gods. Their love for all the saints unites them to each other in the midst of that culture. And I want to keep that up and ask you two questions. First, what separates you from the surrounding culture? What makes you distinct 
that, that idea of set-apartness is the idea of holiness. Um, when you read the Old Testament especially, you come across the, the theme of holiness all over the place. You're not necessarily ever, all the time going to find that word, holiness, but the idea is saturating the, the Old Testament. It starts with things that seem very mundane, like cleansing rituals for the Old Testament people. Those are about holiness, set-apartness. What makes you different from the surrounding peoples that are very common? The, the Sabbath regulations, the fact that um, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy is one of the Ten Commandments, might seem like instruction for an older time, but it's about holiness. It tells the people of God, God is holy preeminently. He is set apart. He is distinct. There is no other God, we might say like Him, but there is no other God, period. He is distinct from, separate from, different from anything and everyone else, and therefore He is holy with a capital H. And as a result, His people who are called by His name naturally should reflect something of that holiness. Be holy, therefore, because I am holy, God says. And so, keep the, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy is about reflecting that kind of holiness. God worked for six days, rested on the seventh, and so should you set apart, treat differently one day out of seven. The rite of circumcision was about holiness. It was an external marker placed on males in Israel that made them distinct from the surrounding cultures. When Israel entered the promised land, the book of Joshua, ahead of time, they're uh, gravely warned against intermarrying and intermingling with the native peoples in Canaan, expressly because they were a holy people and they were not to intermarry because that would lead to false worship, choosing to, to imitate these peoples in worshiping their foreign gods who are not gods at all. And God, through His, people, uh, His prophets, said, don't do it. Uh, in my annual Bible reading plan, I happen to have just finished Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. They cover um, the, the same period of time when the Israelites are allowed by the Persian Empire to return to their homeland, to begin to rebuild not only the walls of Jerusalem, but the temple of, of God. Um, why were they in exile for 70 years? Because they, for centuries, had demonstrated unfaithfulness to God. They had disobeyed. They had pushed Him aside. They had worshipped false gods, and they were disciplined in exile. Well, a, a kindly Persian king allows them to return. And the book of Ezra ends with this rebuking sermon against intermarriage. Now, let me be clear, it's not interracial relationships, otherwise I'd be in trouble, okay? Um, intermarriage is all about holiness. Intermarriage is all about um, marrying someone to, to, who does not share your core foundational defining beliefs, faith. And Ezra's book, his teaching, ends with this theme. Don't do it, and those of you who have done it, you need to undo it. Wow. The book of Nehemiah, overlapping same time period, ends with a rebuke about Sabbath breaking. Why? It's about holiness. You're acting like everyone else around here, but you worship a holy God, the one true God. Honor the Sabbath. 
don't treat it like every other day. And by the way, some of you men have intermarried foreign wives, and he adds that rebuke yet again. It's all about holiness. What makes you different from everyone else in school, in the office, in your neighborhood, amongst your uh, circle of friends in the book club? It can't just be this sort of nice neighbor strategy. I, I hear fairly regularly from people, you know, well, I prefer not to witness with my words. I, I just try to be as good of a person as I possibly can and demonstrate with my life witness who God is. And, and can I be subtle this morning and tell you it's not going to work? It's doomed to failure. Why? One reason being plenty of irreligious people and most Muslims and practically every Mormon is going to outperform you in being a good person. Uh, others' goodness outside of faith in Jesus Christ are going to point people in the wrong direction. Don't think you can be such a good neighbor and such a good uh, office coworker and such a good uh, classmate that everyone is going to see the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ through your life. What makes you distinct? Only a gospel-rooted foundation, verses 3 through 14, which fuels worship, which transforms your mind, which reorders your priorities, which then directs your decision-making. Only that kind of God-ordained chain reaction will set you apart from the world and its values. That's unpacking chapel's first part. Well, the second question then is what, how do you pursue unity within the family of God? How do you pursue unity? Look, being good is a good start, right? Because it reflects something of the, the, the character of God, the goodness of God. But, but you need to go further. Um, showing up at church and gathering with people in one room for one purpose, uh, an hour and a quarter once a week, is good, don't get me wrong. This, this is a marvelous thing. It honors God, but we need to go further. We can't just stop here and say, I pursue unity within the family of God because I go to church. There's more. This is the starting point. The early church in the book of Acts and in some of Paul's letters gave us, gives us a, a rich picture of what it meant and what it still should mean to one another, to share, to extend hospitality, to, to serve the, the needy. And one phrase we find um, is to break bread together. Now, sometimes that meant more of the formal celebration of the Lord's Supper, breaking bread together. But most often, it's simply referred to sharing a meal, sitting down to dinner together. Are you pursuing unity within the family of God? Are you connected? If you're not, join a growth group. There's a reason we take up one-sixth of the entire bulletin every week by giving you that list of growth groups because we believe it's so important to be in community. Um, volunteer to serve. Sign up for our annual church retreat. Uh, as soon as you go out into the Fellowship Hall, they're on the left. Ask some questions. Think about it. Pray about it. Um, save up if, if finances are a concern. Ask for a scholarship. Um, sign up for dinner eights the next time we, we do that. That takes a little bit of social courage to say, I'm going to go to someone's house I don't know and sit around the table with people I don't know, but let me guarantee you that you will become that much more connected once you do that. 
respond positively to the welcome lunch next time we drop an invite in your inbox. These aren't just church activities that we dream up to keep the calendar full, to find things to do. These are opportunities to grow in love and unity with all of God's people. Back to Paul's context. For this reason, because of God's salvation plan and all that He's done, which is foundation, ever since I heard about your faith and your love, what does he say? That defining experience motivates him to do, to pray and to praise. Have you ever shared that kind of sentiment with anyone else? Because of what God has done, ever since I heard about your faith and your love, I've not stopped praising and praying for you. And if you'd honestly said, I've never said that, never said anything close to that, my second related question is, have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever spoken that to you? And I'm ashamed to say, because I'm, I'm a part of whether uh, the, the problem, if you've never heard that or haven't heard it enough, I, I'm, I'm unfortunately pretty confident what our collective answers will sound like. And the question is, why? Why does that not, why is that so absent from our interactions within the family of God? Shouldn't that just be so natural within the people of God redeemed by the blood of the Son? I want us to consider how unnatural it is to not notice what God is doing in each other's lives. And, and I'll paint a picture of what is so fundamentally natural as a contrast. Uh, think of new parents. I, uh, I visited uh, new parents uh, this past week with a little baby boy, uh, three weeks old. And new parents without exception, stare at every little detail of their newborn. It is an awesome reality to consider that an egg and a sperm, a microscopic realities, uh, produced 10 perfect little fingers and 10 perfect little toes, each with a tiny little nail in just the right location. This is a marvel of God's creation, Grandmas, in my experience, are the ones who uh, come up with these theories. You know, um, they, they notice these little details like a birthmark, and you, they say to their grandchildren, you get that from your dad, you know, because he's got a, a, a little dot on his left f- pinky, and you have something on your left eye. And I have no idea if that's rooted in science, but don't throw science at a grandma who is ooing and eyeing over their grandchild. She cares nothing about alleles and dominant genes. Why? because she's too busy noticing and delighting, which are so natural and good and pleasing to God. What Paul is doing here is noticing and delighting in the Ephesian believer's Christ-shaped birthmark. He's saying, I know whose you are. I know who your parents are, because you look like them. I know who you belong to. I know where this fruit in your life that I'm praising God for has its roots nourishing it, 
Again, our, our sermon series graphic, right? Because Christ is saturating that soil. Christ provides the root system to produce this fruit in your life. I know exactly where it comes from. He sees their vertical faith in God and a horizontal love for God's people, and he can't help but praise and pray. We need that lesson, folks. We need to increasingly learn how to give thanks for the fruit of the Spirit that we see in other people's lives, even when that fruit has yet to ripen. It's not edible. It's not yet enjoyable, but we see it coming. We see glimpses. We see baby steps. Have you ever gotten on your stomach and cheered on a seven-month-old who is trying to roll over? Have you ever done that? And then when they do, it's like, yes, you did it, buddy. That is not a marketable life skill. That is not going to set apart a person later in life because they rolled over at seven months versus eight months. But that doesn't stop you from naturally, instinctively noticing and delighting in. They just rolled over people. But that doesn't lessen our joy. Uh, your, Your joy is no less when your preschooler can tie her shoes for her first time before she goes to school in September. Yes, a victory. Your joy is no less when your little boy, whose name is Samuel, finally writes the S in his name the right way without reversing the squiggle. We, we delight in these little things. We properly notice them and we celebrate them, even when they're not earth-shattering, life-transforming realities. Folks, we need to learn to be just as natural in our spiritual interactions, in giving thanks to God for and in commending horizontally any desire for God, any movement towards Him, any other-centered, sacrificial-like-Jesus kind of inclination and say, I know where that comes from. I know that fruit gets its nutrients from the root who is Jesus because you've been chosen by God, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Son, and you've been sealed for an inheritance by the Holy Spirit. And ever since I saw that in you, I can't stop overflowing. I can't stop praising God. I can't stop thanking uh, Him and commending you for what I see. I need to hear that just as much as I trust you do to grow in looking for traces of grace to not missing those opportunities, especially with our children and other people's children, to commend and encourage, to drop them a note in the mail and say, I praise God for your heart of service to God. That's Jesus in you. Lastly, thanksgiving and intercession. Ever since he heard about faith and love in these Ephesian believers, verse 16, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's prayer. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul prayed unceasingly, unselfishly, and gratefully for these Ephesian believers. People often ask a very logical question. Well, why pray if God is sovereign? And we get that logic, right? But 
one of the best answers to that question really needs to be a question in and of itself. Why pray if God is sovereign? We need to say, why pray if he isn't? The first question we get, God is almighty. God is all wise. What does he need my measly little prayers for? What impact could they possibly accomplish? But the second question actually tells us more about the reality and power of prayer. Because if God is not sovereign and you're praying to him, you better have a good backup plan. You better better have something else up your sleeve. You better have your fingers crossed behind your back because who knows if he listens and who knows if he can actually do anything about your prayers. You know, uh, to, to get a telegram back from heaven, sorry, I wish I could do something, but it's beyond my control. That would be reason to never pray ever again. But if God is sovereign, he's able to act and your prayers will be answered. Perhaps because he's all wise in a manner in which you would never dream up, but you trust him and then no answer is actually for your good. Isn't that natural? We instinctively ask experts when we have a dilemma and we need the answer. We instinctively ask ask experts to get into the situation to solve the problem, um, to, to move on beyond this obstacle. We instinctively look to someone who is powerful or in authority when we're in trouble, whether it's a big brother on the playground or a police officer when there's a threat. Prayer only makes sense, obvious, when it's directed or it should be obvious to us, but we don't act like it is, prayer only makes sense when it's directed to a sovereign God who is able to do something about that prayer. Why pray to a sovereign God? Why pray if he isn't? The great church reformer, John Calvin, shared these six biblical reasons why we should pray. We don't have time to unpack these. They could be a sermon series in and of themselves, but I wanted to share that because this uh, ministered to me this week. He gives six reasons why we should pray. To fuel a passion to seek, love, and serve God. To purify the desires of our hearts because we are sinful. To build gratitude as we receive what God gives to us. To reflect on and appreciate more deeply His kindness and goodness. To delight in God and His blessings. To confirm that God is actively working for our good. There's no number seven that says to get what we want. And that, that begs the question, well, what exactly does Paul ask for? That's next week. But just for this morning, let me point out that biblical prayers, and especially Paul's prayer here, sounds nothing like our typical prayers for health and jobs and relationships and marriage and parenting. As good and necessary as those kinds of prayers are, there's a whole category. This is why we call kingdom prayer with that title. There's a whole category that we ignore. And we learn from the prayers of the Bible, especially the Apostles' Prayer that we'll look at next week. If your foundation is right, rooted in Christ, accessing all the blessings that are yours through faith in Christ, then prayer will naturally overflow. Then faith in God and love for God's people will be displayed. 
then the church will increasingly become a powerful and attractive counterculture for the world to see. Not a bunch of legalistic Pharisees who are out for performance so that we are good Christians unlike those bad people. That attracts nothing. But that Jesus would be exalted, we would increasingly lean on Him to be a community shaped by love, strengthened by one anothering, pointing to our roots to the extent that we can produce any fruit that the world may know and see this Jesus who is described in verses to come as the one seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. He is King of kings. Let's bow before him. Lord, we marvel at what you have done. We are rightly admonished when we fail to access and treasure all the blessings that you have poured out for us in Christ. They are invaluable. They are limitless. They are incomparable. They are real compared to the passing fancies and trifles of this world. So, Lord, through your Spirit in and among us, grab hold of our minds and hearts, change our wills, direct us back to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.